the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, a rebuttal to the 1619 Project from Dr. Mary Graybar. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to Sideline Sanity, everyone. Michelle Tafoya with you. And today's topic is a sensitive one. It's a fascinating one. It's so interesting. And I'm really glad to have Dr. Mary Graybar here to talk about her piece of work, which counters the 1619 Project. And many of you have probably heard about this. The author, Nicole Hannah-Jones, a journalist, not an historian, and I think that's really important, wrote this 1619 project for the New York Times and Dr. Mary Graybar has written a counter to it. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why did you think it was important to write an argument sort of to counter the 1619 project? Well, one of the major reasons is that it's in schools. So when the 1619 project first came out in summer of 2019, there were some uh, pre-made lessons that were immediately shipped out to 3,500 schools. That number increased to 4,500. And uh, there are other nonprofit entities besides the Pulitzer Center, which was the first um, distributor of those lessons. And it's being pumped into schools. And uh, quite frankly, uh, it's being used K through 12. But especially for little kids, I think the message in that is emotional child abuse. It's false. Um, It pits uh, kids against each other by race. It goes back and gives this false narrative of American history. And uh, so it's it's false for one thing. (laughs) It's not historically accurate. And um, it has an agenda, and that is... Uh, to divide America, as my subtitle says. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the things that caught me when I was reading your book is that there was this, this this is so interesting because it, it, it sounds conspiratorial when we talk about this. But when Russia first sort of had its, a chapter of its, how, how do we describe it? It's communist chapter in the United States. It was in New York back just in the early 1900s mm-hmm. and and russia communist russia saw race as a way to divide americans do i have that right 
You absolutely do. It's it's a wedge issue. Um, the way the communists gain power typically in all countries is through a civil war. They pit people against each other. And this is the perfect race, is the perfect um, wedge issue in the United States of America, and it dates all the way back to slavery, which uh, uh, Hannah Jones has has described as the founding of the United States of America. You know, it's it's first of all, I think we should talk about her in this, in that she is a journalist, and this is described as a journalism project. So, why do you suppose people are adopting it as some form of a, of a history? Uh, academic history? Well, I think we have a lot, you know, education is infused with people from the far left. Uh, They're no longer interested in uh, disseminating knowledge, getting students to be critical thinkers, to think for themselves, to be independent. They're interested in promoting their own ideology and making students into activists for their own political agenda. I spent 20 years in academia, so I know these people. Um, They have ulterior motives. Uh, Often they do not care about the truth. They will not debate you if you challenge them. If you give them evidence, they will not debate you. And um, so so this is, um, you know, it's a narrative and, and it, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones herself calls it a narrative, and that's what's come to dominate history teaching. It's not so much, well, what were the facts? Let's look at, you know, what the situation was like from all perspectives. Let's look at the context. It's, it's a narrative. And the narrative is that this nation was founded on slavery. And uh, the slavery was based on racism, and it still exists to this day. Um, so there has been this deterioration in education for decades. And so the 1619 Project just took it a little bit further and, mm-hmm. um, you know, took that step that few people could anticipate, which is the step to say that, 1776 is not our founding year, but 1619 is instead. And cross out uh, 1776, eliminate the 4th of July holiday, um, tear up the Declaration of Independence, and uh, let's start over with a new kind of government, um, a new kind of regime. It's really interesting to think that that would be the aim when we are the freest country on earth. I I certainly understand this reflection on slavery. It seems as though every generation thinks that we haven't reflected on it enough. And and so they continue to I feel I'm lectured to all the time as someone who oh you don't you don't understand, you don't know history, you don't no one's being taught about slavery and it's like I learned about it in second grade. I, I, you know, it's it's almost this notion that each generation thinks there hasn't been enough attention paid, and so we see a, a more and more of a focus on it. I don't know if I'm right about that. It's my perception. But speaking of that, when we come back from this quick break, critical race theory is this topic that is really infused in the 1619 Project. I want to get into that with you because you have a really interesting take on the faults of of critical race theory. Right back after this. 
Well, we continue to talk about inflation, that terrible I word, and it's it's here. And we're all feeling it in a variety of different ways. And now Fed Chair Jerome Powell says we're going to feel pain, a pretty significant amount of pain, in order to bring inflation down. So are you prepared? Is your 401k prepared? Are your investments prepared? This is a hard time to talk about money and finance because it is, I feel like everyone's a little stressed about it. But I'm going to give you an idea here. Precious metals, and in particular, legacy precious metals. They're the only name that I trust when it comes to investing in gold and silver. Remember 2008? I mean, this is kind of harkening back to that. Those who invested in gold saw huge gains and others just lost their retirements. So maybe you want to pick up the phone and make this call now. Here's the number. It's 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. You can also go to their website, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You can download a free investment guide. But why don't you speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals? They can fill you in on all your options. You can get all your questions asked and answered. And and, and that's the way to do it. So 866-528-1903. Or again, download that free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. All right. Critical race theory is this term, this buzz term, if you will, that is used. And people think that if you disagree with critical race theory, you're a racist or a white supremacist. What is critical race theory? How how would you define it? Well, critical race theory was promoted by the Frankfurt School. Herbert Marcuse was a prime um, proponent of that. They came over in the 1930s and uh, they influenced uh, generations of college students, uh, primarily in the 1960s, people like Angela Davis, who became a communist. Um, And critical theory, and it can be applied to race and it could be applied to any aspect uh, to the law, what it does is it replaces neutrality or objectivity with subjectivity. Um, So if you've read To Kill a Mockingbird, um, there is a famous speech by uh, the defense attorney Atticus Finch, who's defending this man falsely accused of rape. And he says, you know, in our system, It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a millionaire. You can be a farmhand. Um, Our system of government ensures that uh, the law is applied equally. Um, Well, the critical race theorists who are working from critical theory said, well, no, you can't have fairness because, um, you know, white people have different experiences from from black people. And so it introduces subjectivity, not objectivity, where, you know, you're going to judge the evidence fairly. And you do this in history, too, right? You look at all the evidence, you bring it in. And then, you you know, once you've got the full picture, you make a judgment. You do that in a court of law. But under critical race theory, you have subjectivity, the personal experiences, the narratives, people's stories, and that replaces what actually happened. And of course, in uh, our system today, there are certain people whose 
narratives are worth more than other people's. So uh, you you're not looking for facts. You're looking for subjective experiences. And so, uh, you know, you don't have uh, an evaluation that's based on evidence, but on people's feelings, who they are, uh, you know, their identities, whether it's right. racial or gender or whatever. And so it's um, it's it, it completely upends our Western system of law and way of thinking. Is there anything beneficial about critical race theory in your view? I I don't see anything beneficial in it at all because it's not in it's not intended to bring about justice and fairness. Um, or an accurate picture of history, it's intended to inflame passions and to cause division and discord among people. Um, And it privileges certain groups. And so what you have is, you know, someone who identifies as, you know, say, a person of color or gay or whatever, you know, the, the preferences that day, that person will have certain advantages over another person. And it's just not fair. I think we all have an innate sense of fairness. And that's what this country is founded on. Yeah. And I think that very often the counter to what you've just said as well, white people have had advantages for a long time. So we're due. You know, the, the uh, people of color are due. So it doesn't matter what the facts are, really. This is payback time. I, I'm putting that in a very coarse terms, but that's kind of the sense that I've been getting over the past decade or so. And is that kind of a, a, a descriptive way to, to, to talk about what you're saying here? That, that, that privileged person is the person now who suggests they've been oppressed for so long that it's about damn time. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, that that is a, a, quite frankly, a primitive way of looking at things. Um, and it's also historically inaccurate because what you're doing is you're putting people into broad categories. And as I show in debunking the 1619 Project, uh, when I go into the history of slavery in the world and in this country, um, you can't automatically say that someone, uh, you know, an African-American today is descended from um, enslaved people. There were black people who enslaved other blacks in America. A significant percentage of the uh, free blacks did that. Now, a person, an African-American today could have in her or his background people who were enslaved and people who were enslavers. Often what happened in the South was, um, you know, uh, a slave could earn his freedom. So if, you know, they they wanted to work on, uh, you know, their off hours, they could earn the money and pay the master, depended on the master. Um, They often went out and purchased their own slaves then after they had uh, been, uh, you know, freed from slavery themselves. And there are a lot of different stories about that actually happening. And some of these people became quite wealthy. 
They acquired many slaves. They had plantations. They had businesses. Um, so you can't, um, you know, categorize people and say, you know, well, in my background, I've, you know, had privilege and someone else has not had privilege. I mean, that's just not the way life is. And with uh, slavery in this country, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. And no one should think that by any means slavery is a defensible thing. We, we all look back on it and understand what a blight it is on history. The other aspect of that I would suggest, and I think is historically correct, this country, whether it was before the founding, you know, whenever you want to go back, however far you want to go back to the 1600s, was not the first to enslave people. It, slavery has been a worldwide phenomenon, has it not? Oh, absolutely. And I try to give, um, you know, perspective on that. And I think, you know, uh, contrary to what some of the critics say, people on the other side of the political aisle are not shirking the topic of slavery, but you need to put it into perspective. In uh, the 18th century, when our country was founded, slavery and servitude was the norm. Most people were in some form of servitude, unless you were among the elite. Um, so if you went around the globe, you were a serf, you were a servant, you were a slave. This notion of being free and, um, you know, working for your own wages, um, that's a modern concept. And that's something uh, that was promoted in this country. And it, it was a new idea at the time. So when you look at the big picture, you get a very different um, perspective of, you know, our history of slavery and, uh, you know, what its role was. I mean, that's why you had people petitioning uh, for their freedom. They pointed to the Declaration of Independence. They said, hey, this is what you're saying, you know, yeah. what about us, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was, there, and there weren't, you know, we, um, you know, we declared independence from a king. There is no royalty. Everyone has to make their own way. And, you know, people rightfully said, well, yeah, we, we want part of that, too. And if that ideal hadn't been there, um, it, if that expectation hadn't been there, um, people would have settled uh, for, you know, their status. So in a country even today like Mauritania, um, the sub-Saharan Africans who are enslaved by uh, the Muslims, accept their lot. They just say, well, hey, this is the way it is. My grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, th this is who we are. But that's not the case uh, in America. It's, uh, it's, it's, you spend a lot of time, I, I'm just fascinated by what you're saying. You spend a lot of time, in the, especially in the first third of the book, talking about Thomas Jefferson, who appears to be the target of a lot of hatred because on the one hand he wrote this declaration of independence and by the way wrote part of it which was then eliminated to work to abolish slavery but he had slaves and that 
simple sort of bit of tension seems to be this reason to just cancel him, take everything he did and throw it on the heap of history and say, take down the statues. He was a slave owner. But people don't recall that Jefferson was born into this very luxurious life, unlike some of the other founders, we'll say Benjamin Franklin, and wanted slavery to be abolished from a very young age. How how have we gotten him so wrong? Well, yeah, there has, you know, it's a, a simplified view of history. It's, you know, you've got the good guys and you've got the bad guys. And just by virtue of the fact that you own slaves, you're a bad guy. And uh, I discussed this in a recent essay of, about what's happening at the American Historical Association. It's applying the standards of the present to the past. Um, so, of course, today, you know, we would think uh, that it would be horrible for anyone to own a slave. But Thomas Jefferson uh, was born into the society, as you said, of, um, you know, slave owning. He inherited slaves when his father died when he was 14. Uh, he had to take care of his mother's slaves. Um, this was a responsibility. Among the slave owners, we could say that Thomas Jefferson was among the better ones. And as I document in debunking the 1619 Project, he kept, unlike some slave owners, including black slave owners, he kept track of the families. He, he did not want to split families apart if they had to be sold. He, you know, when they became old, they had to be taken care of. Um, so he understood that he hated the, the institution. He tried to figure out a way to end it without war because he could see war coming. Um, he was unable to do that, but he did end the international slave trade. So slaves could not be imported. It was illegal to do that. He did that as president. Um, that was a big step. Um, there were things he could do and he couldn't do, just like any political leader. You know, you can't do, you can't wave a magic wand. You're not a dictator. You can't do whatever you want. And um, so we have to keep that in mind. And so I, I go into, you know, a correspondence, uh, you know, with him and uh, the secret, a young man who was Edward Coles, who was the secretary of James Madison. And he was 27 years old and very idealistic and, and asked the 72 year old Jefferson, uh, you know, to come on, let's, let's work for abolition. And, and I describe the challenges Edward Coles himself faced ha having been born into a very wealthy family and just like having all these people he was responsible for. I mean, I can't imagine you know, uh, someone like Thomas Jefferson or Edward Coles and uh, your father dies and you're a teenager and it's yeah. like, I we've got these people here. They need to be fed. They need to be housed. Our society won't let us let them uh, go free. If, they, if we do let them go free, they have to go out of state. They'll probably be killed. They'll be starved. We need to take care of them. It's this dilemma. Yeah, and it is a dilemma. And to suggest that that is patriarchal is overlooking the fact that it's care and concern. And, and, and I realize 
in the context of this, how that may sound Pollyanna, but it was also the reality of the situation. There's, there's a lot of detail about Sally Hemings and Thomas Mm -hmm. Jefferson and their relationship. And that if indeed Thomas Jefferson or his brother or whomever fathered her children, therefore he was a monster. He took advantage of her. Do we even know for a fact, Dr. Graybar, that Sally Hemings bore children of the Jefferson men is because there has been DNA testing done, correct? Yes. And um, if you go to the Monticello website, they'll give this, um, you know, false information that he fathered six of her children. They did DNA testing and it showed a less than 10 percent chance that he fathered her youngest child. He would have been 65 years old. So it's highly unlikely Um, They do believe, though, uh, so it could have been one of nine Jefferson men, and I believe it was his nephew who would come come out and, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, hang out with with the slaves and play music and stuff, Randolph. Um, So it's very highly unlikely that Jefferson fathered even one of her children. There is no evidence for that. There is no proof. And as a matter of fact, after that, uh, after that initial DNA testing was done, that showed a, a very slim chance, uh, the family refused to do further DNA testing, which would have confirmed things. The Hemings family? Yes, refused? The, the descendants. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And do we know why? Well, they probably don't want the truth to come out. I mean, it makes you suspicious, you know, if you're... Uh, Submitting to one round of DNA testing, you you think, you know, you want the answer. Um, why not, you know, get those results confirmed if, the, you know, if the science says it should be. So uh, it's all very suspicious. It's all uh, part of the propaganda to take down Thomas Jefferson and the wholesale, uh, you know, effort to destroy American history and uh, our sense of who we are as a nation. And Jefferson is taking the brunt of this. Why? Well, he has been known as the apostle of liberty. And because he, you know, wrote the Declaration of Independence, he was among the most liberal of the founders Um, He was a man of learning. He was very much a Renaissance man. And uh, so he is the one um, who is is being attacked. So, uh, you know, you're not going to go after the obvious one. Right. You you know, there, there are others, you know, that have already been taken down the Confederates. So let's just go for this yeah. guy who's been known as the Apostle of Liberty. And boy, that will really show them right there. Even the Apostle of Liberty was, uh, you know, this tyrant, this enslaver. Um, as a, a monster st- of Monticello. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, the, uh, you know, the 1619 Project says he uh you know, ran slave labor camps, you know, implying that he was, uh, you know, a Nazi or something or, you know, had a gulag. Um, so it's it's an attempt to attack America, uh, attacking America through Thomas Jefferson, who 
who was revered. I mean, he, yeah. you know, you used to have the uh, Jefferson Jackson dinners uh, for the Democratic Party, and now they no longer do. So what, it's what he represents and uh, his life story as well. This is, I think, the toughest part for me here is that we have the 1619 Project, which is, again, I'll say it again. I know I said this earlier. It's described as a piece of journalism. Okay. So myself being a journalist, journalism is not rooted necessarily, sometimes it is, in historic fact. And has Nicole Hannah-Jones been willing to to debate against anyone like you to to sort of prove that what she is saying is actually legitimate? No, as a matter of fact, I've been blocked from her Twitter account. We went into some arguments and debates. And um, if you are a journalist, uh, you know, and you're investigating something that's out of your field, like history, you should be willing to listen to the experts which she has not been. There's been there have been numerous criticisms. She has not been willing to go into any forum other than one which is worshipful of her. Um, what they did with the magazine is they turned it into a 500 plus page hardcover book, and so then she touted that as being a, a scholarly refutation because it has a thousand endnotes. So for months. She was promising that this would answer all the critics, you know, um, questions and uh, points of uh, criticism and that, you know, it would be peer reviewed by respected historians and they would have guidance by respected historians. So what I've done in the paperback edition that just came out last week of my book, Debunking the 1619 Project, is I've provided a 35-page appendix where I take a deep dive into all those endnotes and investigate. Her endnotes, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like footnotes, but they're at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, and and so who are, who are these authorities that are quoted? Well, a lot of them are, well, there's Ibram X. Kendi, for one. <laughs> uh, there are far-left historians, and when uh, the reputable historians are quoted, uh, their words are often twisted around or, uh, you know, their larger points are ignored. Sometimes the end notes go to a web page that doesn't bring you to anything, doesn't have any information. So I look at the dubious claims of scholarliness that are made for this hardcover book, which is you know, in colleges and high schools, it's used as a textbook, it's in school libraries, and it is uh, the opposite of being scholarly. Right, right. So here's a concern, Dr. Graybar. You, you said that you spent a lot of time, time in academia, and now we've got this 1619 Project being absorbed into academia, in spite of the fact that it is not a work of actual history and not an historic uh, document or project. <sighs> Who's going to, which ideas are going to win here? It, it does feel as though this is a battle for over ideas and, and, and facts. 
Yeah, well, well, the thing is, you know, you, it used to be that both sides, you know, based their arguments on facts. But since we've uh, adopted critical theory and critical race theory, facts no longer matter. It's your feelings. It's your personal story. Right. Um, so we have no common ground on which to debate the issue. Uh, I maintain that we still need to insist that we should, uh, you know, determine what we're going to be teaching and what we're going to be accepted as history on the basis of facts. If you are simply going according to one's narrative, Nicole Hannah-Jones's personal history, her feelings, her feelings of anger, and I've commented on that before, that come from, you know, not what America has done to her, but other things. Uh, all you have is a power play. You have the powerful winning out. I mean, you can go back to Plato's dialogues and you learn about that. And, and that's the reason why we need a classical education in order to understand how important it is um, to uh, have these ground rules where you are discussing the issues on the basis of evidence and of reason, of objectivity as much as you can, rather than having these uh, shouting matches, name calling, which is what the other side does. You're, you're, you know, I've been called a racist because I'm simply, of you course, know, of course pointing, you out, have. <laughs> pointing out, you know, real history. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we, we, if the other side continues to like uh, use, uh, manipulate history uh, as an assertion of power, we still need to insist, wait, this did not happen. This did not happen. Um, and, and that's what my book is written for. It's, it's for people who are, you know, pick up the 1619 project and are appalled and they don't know like, well, where do I begin? <laughs> you yeah, know, taking yeah. this apart, uh, objecting to it. And so I'm hoping my book will give them a resource and give a fairer picture of American history. Um, how, how has your book, how has your work been received by other historians? Oh, I had a, a, a wonderful mention in a review essay in the Claremont Review recently in their spring issue. And I've got endorsements, um, you know, from some of the best historians and, um, you know, other intellectuals. So they're, it's on the cover of my book. I'm very proud of the endorsements I've gotten. And as a matter of fact, you know, I mentioned, you know, the fact checking and the peer review. I'm here at the Alexander Hamilton Institute uh, for the study of Western civilization. And I've had, uh, I've been very uh, fortunate to have the input of, um, you know, the president of our foundation, an internationally renowned historian, um, of slavery and the, the slave trade. And so I've gotten guidance from him. I've, he's reviewed my work. You know, you always need other people to, you know, to check your work um, and to make sure, you know, you're not interpreting something in the wrong way or something. So, um, you know, I pride myself on uh, the accuracy of my work. I'm always willing 
always willing to accept corrections. I will always listen. If someone says, wait, you got this fact wrong. And, and that has been done to me, uh, you know, and I'll, and I will check it out. And if it, uh, if it does check out, I will make the changes and I'm very grateful for it. Nicole Hannah Jones does not want to do that. She, she um, just wants to be in front of audiences that uh, are ignorant or uh, emotionally, uh, you know, wrapped up in uh, getting revenge or children, you know, who don't know any better or social justice activists like herself. She doesn't mm-hmm. want to be in a forum. And I've described how the National Association of Scholars, which I belong to, has invited her on three occasions to participate in discussions and conferences, and she just doesn't answer. Hmm. Uh, I, I, that's unfortunate. That is really unfortunate. If, if you want to be taken seriously and if you believe ardently in what you've done, you ought to be willing to debate it and stand up for what you, you believe your work asserts. And that that's, that's unfortunate for everyone. It's a really interesting read. It, it your, your book debunking the 1619 project, Dr. Mary Graybart. I, I wish you luck. I thank you for your time. It's just been a, a, a discussion that I could have gone on and on with. Um, as I said, from a very young age, I've been learning about slavery all the awful details, mm-hmm. a, a vast array of facts about it. You bring out some that I, I had not seen before. And I appreciate that very much. And I think people ought to be fair in, a, in approaching this topic and, and, and look at your work. So thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for having me on. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave and do good. Well, we always appreciate it when Charles Thorngren can join the join the podcast and talk a little money and gold in particular with us, gold and silver. And Charles, it's these are mad times. I mean, it's just really wacky. And anyone who's watching the stock market is probably asking themselves, what do I do? I don't I don't know. You know, I'm not I don't know how to ride this roller coaster with everyone. And so, obviously, you recommend investing in precious metals. What's the first step that someone should take in learning about what precious metals can do for them? You know, the first step, um, give us a call, right? We're going to show you what options there are available. Um, That's what Legacy is about, is showing you options and educating everyone. The important thing to know is that we don't invest in gold and silver because it's pretty or because it's, it's unique. Those things are true, but we do it because it has the history of being the true diversity for someone's portfolio. It's the insurance policy against everyone's retirement and their uh, their savings. So, so this is why we look at, at gold and silver specifically. It's the currency that was always meant to be, right? It's not a fiat currency. There's no um, inflationary effect on it. Gold and silver are going to be worth what they're worth. The thing that changes with everything is the amount of dollars it takes to buy that gold and silver and the amount of dollars you get for owning that gold and silver. That's the big key. 
And this is what people don't understand about it typically is that it is not the stock market and it is not the dollar. It's an investment that is counter to both of those. So it gives you true diversity and balance is what everyone's looking for right now. They just don't know it. As inflation yeah. gets higher, this is where gold and silver come in. Someone is saying, okay, I, I want to do this, but I want to choose one or the other. When right. they call you and ask you these questions, when would you recommend gold and when would you recommend silver? You know, that's a great question. And what a lot of people wind up doing is actually doing a little of both because that's possible, right? But it's going to depend on your specific investment parameters. And that's one of the things we're going to do that we're, we're different from your typical stockbroker because we're not going to say, this is what all my customers are doing. Because that's not what's important. What's important is what matters to you and your portfolio. When is your retirement coming up? What are you looking to accomplish, right? What are your risks? What are, what are, your, what are your safety features that you need? So there's a lot that goes into it. And what we do here is, is talk with you, right? Our, our big thing is to educate you so that you understand why you're doing it as well as in what form and fashion. Because that's important. It is important. And I think, too, that people probably think uh, I'm a small investor. This is not for me. I can't I can't afford to do this. I can't afford to do this at a level that will benefit me to them. You would say what? Um, I don't think you can afford not to. If you have money saved and you're not flush with cash, it's more important than ever for you to make sure that you put yourself in a protective situation. Right. You have less to lose. So you should not lose it. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's about how much protection you need. And if you don't have a, a very large portfolio, then you probably need it more than the guy who does because you can't afford that loss. And look at what the market's done over the course of the year. We are talking about a situation where the loss is extravagant and it's not done yet. This is why we look at uh, precious metals to counter that. And lastly, Charles, for those who fear that a recession may already be here or is coming, what do you tell them about how in a recession this investment helps out? Great question. A um, couple answers there. We are in a recession, um, but the reality is it's not going to get bad for a few more months. Then it's really going to be bad. What we see happen next year is going to be devastating. Just think 2007, 2008, right? The troubles with 2008 happened in 2007. It just took time for it to hit the market in a real sense. And this is what we see. You know, we have inflationary numbers that rival the 80s. Um, that's something that's going to be dramatic. So, when we look at this, we say, why do we want to do it? And that's exactly why it helps because it's not the dollar and it's not the stock market, right? This is the safe haven investment. And if you look at long-term wisdom, that's what metals do. They give you a place to store your wealth without the effects of inflation, right? Inflation is good for your metals. The stock market correcting is good for your metals, a weak economy is better for your metals. So that's what it's meant to do. And that's why it has its place in the economy. We're talking about a worst case scenario right now, but even under the best of terms, 
The government tells you two to 3% inflation is a good thing. And at two or 3%, it doesn't sound bad, right? But over the course of your retirement and your lifetime investing, if you go 40 years, you've lost over 120% of value of your dollar by not having metals. So even in the best of times, there should be some in your portfolio. And during the worst, you really want to make sure you get a hold of somebody who can explain why and show you what options you have. Yeah, that's why we love to recommend Legacy Precious Metals on our show, Sideline Sanity. So the website is LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You can also go to the website and find the phone number to call, learn a whole lot more. It's just worth asking some questions, right? A quick phone call and getting more information about everyone's specific situation. Absolutely. We're a no-pressure organization. Everyone who contacts us, they reach out to us. We share information. If it's right for you, great. If it's not, that's great too. Learning something never hurt anybody. No, that is true. (laughs) And we're glad we had you on to learn something from you today, Charles Thorngren. Again, it's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Please go check them out. Just ask some questions. Learn a little something. Thank you so much, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com